Welcome to Cloudlandia. Mr. Sullivan. Uh, Mr. Jackson. <clears throat> Welcome Are you ever to Cloudlandia. Do... Are you ever going to do one of these calls in the coffee place where they have the great pastries and then you can ride a bike to burn it off? Oh, you see, that would be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> I haven't heard of such a place, but I need to find I, out. No, I thought that's where you went. You had the, it's at a nearby. Oh yeah, I do place. go to a great. Uh, I do go to a great coffee shop. Very bright, beautiful, comfortable couch. I was mm-hmm. there this morning, actually. And Dan, I am bursting at the seams. I am reading the most fascinating book, and I'm wondering. I'm hoping that I might introduce this to you, but I'm hoping mm-hmm. more that you may have already read it. This is mm-hmm. a book from 1952 called The Big Change, America Transforms Itself, 1900 to 1950 by Frederick Lewis Allen. And th- this was a New York Times bestseller in 1952, and it chronicles the contrast between 1900 and 1950 and all the Mm -hmm. progress that was made in that 50-year period. And it is fascinating. Have you heard of it or seen it? No, I haven't, but I'll definitely get it. Immediately, top of your list. It's the most fascinating book because it's exactly... This is the, you know, if we wrote Welcome to Cloudlandia right now, I think that we are, where we are right now in 2022 is the equivalent of where we were progress-wise in 1922, the midway point between 1900 and 1950. I think where we are right now between 2000 and 2050 here in 2022 is a good barometer of kind of where uh, everything was kind of, by 1922, all the basic pieces were in place in terms of electricity, television, radio, telephone, the, you know, air air flight, all of that stuff was kind of in place in 1922. And all of the major like you know, the exponential kind of improvement in stuff happened kind of between 1922 and 1950. And then I've talked about that in my observation, by 1950, we were kind of plateaued in a way and stayed largely unchanged from 1950 to 1985 kind of thing, where the, you know, with the VCR... And the personal computer computer. came in. Yeah. And so this is just, I am, I'm fascinated by seeing this and how, you know, they were saying in 1900, one of the things that was a reality was that the most of the country, unless you were in the same village or city, really had no common experience. There was no common American ground. You know, no, but there was nothing because you had local newspapers that were kind Mm -hmm. of your view because there wasn't such a thing as nationally, you know, syndicated article or, you know, columnists kind of thing at that point. It was just 
getting started. And the magazine industry was what sort of led the way in creating these common American experiences. And reading about Cyrus Curtis, who is the publisher of niche magazines that created these common experiences. Like he, the number one magazine in 1900 was Ladies Home Journal. Just think about those words, right? Like gathering the right audience and they became the vehicle for national advertising for the first time. That this was the real, the only way to speak to ladies at home. And it was really, it was kind of a fascinating thing to see the thing. He also owned the Saturday Evening Post which had 182,000 readers in 1900. The Ladies' mm-hmm. Home Journal had 850,000. This was in 1900 19, or 1950? In 1900. In 1950, they had 28 million subscribers. Yeah. Yeah, the one thing I, I wonder if they mentioned, there were nationally syndicated radio programs. This was, in 1900, started. this was before radio. No, but I'm talking about... 1922, they were starting starting that. So by 1950, because we used to listen to commentators, Fulton Lewis Jr., Gabriel Heater, these were nationally syndicated radio stations because Mm -hmm. before the television networks were television networks, a lot of them were radio networks. And so we listened to that. I have four things, too, that had happened, which actually did make America a national society. And one of them was the GI Bill, that roughly 12 million veterans of the Second World War received starting around 46 or 47. And what this did is allowed the greatest migration from blue-collar inner cities to the suburbs. Literally, the GI Bill Uh created the suburbs, and that combined with the beginning of the interstate highway system, Uh still continues, by the way, the interstate highway system continues to be constructed. Every year, there's connector highways and bypasses of cities Uh and everything. It's the greatest single road system in the world. And so you had that, and the air conditioning kicked in at mm-hmm. that time. And so there was a migration from the upper Midwest, the northeast, to the south and to the southwest, because you could have industrial work that was air-conditioned. Mm-hmm. And and then the national TV was kicking in, you know. But those were all underway by 1950. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the New Jersey Turnpike was the first part of the interstate highway system. Is that right? I didn't realize that. Okay. And then, yeah, it came to us us in Ohio in about 1953. I remember the construction of the Ohio Turnpike along across northern Ohio was about two miles above our farm, and we would hike through various fields and illegally, little kids Mm -hmm. illegally cutting through other people's fields, and we would go 
And there was a place where they were building a bridge for another highway to go across the Ohio Turnpike, and we would go up and watch it being built. Yeah. So, so anyway, very interesting. Yeah. And the one they didn't didn't really mention, you didn't, but he probably alluded to it was atomic power. Mm-mm. He didn't mention that. Atomic I mean, power. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just. Atomic power um, did not exist in 22, but it existed because of the research for the Manhattan Project. So they were already thinking of peaceful uses in the late 1950. I don't know when the first reactors went in, but the Na- Navy started using atomic power for submarines and aircraft carriers in the 1950s. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, so I'm fascinated. Just literally today was the first morning I've had to read it. It just arrived yesterday. And so I'm, you know, I was... So you, this is first. a out-of-print or in-print book? No, it's in-print. I got a paperback. I ordered it on Amazon. I'm sure they have a Kindle version. But it was, but it's, yeah, New York Times bestseller from Called 1952. Big change, right? Big yeah. change. This was his last, this was his last big book, Frederick Lewis Allen, 1890 to 1954. So, and then he went through a big change. He went through a the biggest change of all in 1954. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it's very interesting. I've been invited in September to do a Zoom connect with the entrepreneurial program at the high school where I graduated from in 1962 in Norwalk, wow. Ohio. And wow. um, and I, I, my feeling is it's a program for all four grades of the high school. That's what I'm getting. I have to get a little deeper into what they're doing. And, uh, and anyway, the way I'm going to start off my speech, I said, I just want you to know, 72 years ago, I walked in the main street entrance to the high school, which what's now the high school. I walked all the same building. Well, it was all 12 grades in one building. Wow. uh, In 1950. So I started Mm -hmm. first grade in 1950. And I walked down all the way down to the very, very end, going from south to north. And when I got to the north end, you turned left and I went into a classroom and that was my first grade class. And that mm. was in 1972 years ago, and Sister Mary Josephia said to us, the reason why you're here is to learn things now that are going to be useful to you when you graduate from high school and you go out into the work world. Because in those days, people didn't entertain college as a goal. So, okay. so, so you could graduate at 18 get a job on the assembly line at General Motors, Chrysler, mm. Ford, and within three years, you could you could be married. Have uh, a house. You could buy, yeah. buy a house. You could have a family of three or four by the time you were 30. And from the time you were 18 to 65, you had a built-in growth path, and GM would take care of you. Mm. Isn't that amazing? And then you get a pension at the end. And they had a complete health care plan. They had even had General Motors 
vacation properties where you could go. They had they had funding for advanced training, advanced education. They had college. They had college scholarships. They had educational scholarships for your family members. It was a sweet mm-hmm. deal. Wow. He, one of the things that he talked about in here was the you know the advancements in industry and you know markedly the Henry Ford you know the assembly line stuff that he popularized he didn't invent it they mentioned Cyrus McCormick in here as having used it in his reaper factories as a way of so it's interesting because often Henry Ford you know, is credited as the inventor of the assembly line, uh, which I guess mm-hmm. is not the whole truth. But he was certainly he, he was the inventor of the assembly line for the car industry. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. actually, he picked up the idea from Hunt's meatpacking company in Chicago, and he used to go to the stockyards, and they actually had grandstands there for for you know, spectators. The auctions? No, not the auctions. Oh. To watch pigs come in one end and go out in cans on the other end. Are you kidding me? No, and that was hey, entertainment. Let's go watch that them slaughter some pigs. Oh, wow. 100,000 100, pigs came in every day. They made a racket because pigs are smart enough to know what's going to happen. <laughs> and then they went out at cans, and that's where he got the idea because... Each there was about seventeen processes, and he just, you know, got the concept down, and then he just took a look at how cars were made and put that on. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. The real use, but the real jump that the American industrial system took was during from Pearl Harbor in forty-one till the end of the war, because they just. Ford, Chrysler, and General Motors switched over to wartime production, production. and Henry Ford created a new assembly plant in Willow Run outside of Detroit. Out in the field, he just had these fields, and they created a brand new. It was the largest factory in the world, and they Mm -hmm. produced B-24 bombers. Mm. And before his factory, it would take three to four weeks to produce a bomber. Not well, not, not high like one quality, at a time. Control. Mm-hmm. quality control. And that when his factory was up and it was completely operational, they were knocking out a bomber a day, completely high quality, you know, everything, everything was good. So mm-hmm. I was doing it. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the war, the U S Naval yards, they had these huge naval yards. Philadelphia Naval Yard was one of the biggest in the world. And they were knocking out an aircraft carrier basically every week. Oh, man. That's huge. No, it wasn't completely being built in a week. Hmm. But every week, a completed completed aircraft carrier was being... Oh, I see what yeah. you're saying. Right. Wow. Yeah. I think they, they had four at the beginning of the war, and they ended up with roughly about 145 aircraft carriers. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the demise of you know, one of the greatest political debate moments I've ever witnessed was 
the Obama Romney Romney yeah the Obama Romney debate where Romney was saying to Obama how nothing you know the navy has been woefully out of advancement but there's actually less boats in the navy now than there was in 1920 or mm-hmm. whatever and he said Obama said, yeah, that's true. There's also less horses and bayonets. <laughs> he talked about the advancement of the, the uh, aircraft carriers. <laughs> I mean, Romney just looked so stupid. It was so funny to hear less horses and bayonets. <laughs> that had to have been a prepared answer because that's... Oh, yeah. uh, he, he must, I mean, he must two have, on the nose. No, what happened is that Romney had been recorded as saying that somewhere else, and they said, oh. here's, here's a gotcha, we can get him on, you know, and they, they, you know, they prepare the, you know, they prepare the trap. But anyway, I, um, <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Shows you what happens to management consultants when they get into deeper water. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, lots of interesting things. I was reading. I, I only get two newspapers. Well, I get three. I get the National Post, which is down a from your usual six. Yeah, I used to add six, but the National Post, that's a Toronto paper and it's halfway decent. National. And, Do you get the physical copy of it? Yeah, I, I get three papers. I, okay. Well, I get two on week weekdays. I get the Post and I get the Wall Street Journal. And then on Saturday, I get the Post and I get the Weekend Journal, the Saturday Journal, which is the finest newspaper in the world, hands down, in my entire life. Saturday lifetime. Journal for the... Yeah. Saturday edition of the Wall Street Journal is hands down, in my entire lifetime, the finest newspaper in the world it's just okay. amazing I'm and then the, on that advice yeah you do it just do it for saturday just do it for yeah. saturday you can get it yeah and then also on saturday comes the saturday edition of investors business daily oh. which is a it's a financial news newspaper but it's more an investment newspaper so they have a lot of education an investment, but they have a lead article every Saturday on a particular industry. And one I found very interesting, very fascinating this morning, it was that software companies are now using into coding basically the equivalent of the graphic user interface that was introduced into computing in the, you know, 19... 82, 83, I think it was created at Xerox Park. So no code, coding, is that what we're... Palo Alto Research Center in in Palo Alto. And, And that's where Steve Jobs got it for the Mac, and that's where Bill Gates got it for Windows. Because up until then... If you had a personal computer, you had to le- you had to learn program language to use it. Right. Yeah. And that and people said, well, people will just never have personal computers because they won't be, you know, they won't be motivated to learn how to program. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to have these, you know, very expert sort of priests who kind of let you understand. You're going to have to hire these priest-like experts 
to make the computer useful to you. And then this engineer at Xerox says, no, you don't have to, you don't have to know any language at all. You just have to know how to click. And yeah, and but apparently that you can now code using more or less the same principle. Drag and drop, right? Yeah, yeah drag and drop. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that, and because uh, they were saying we have to have coders, you know, and the, you know, yeah. and the coders were becoming the experts who stood above all and very expensive and everything else, and you know, just bypassing them. It's Cyrus McCormick at another level. Yes. Well, that makes a total sense too, right? Like you can, because a lot of people you can think every kind of thing that you need something to do, like literally once you envision the front of the screen, that's what I was talking about. It's, it's kind of similar to your idea of front stage, backstage. It's programming mm -hmm. is really two things. The vision of the front of the screen of what it looks like and what it is supposed to do when you click this button or when you enter this data into the form there, what shows or what calculation or, you know, function does clicking this button provide? Does it take you somewhere else? Does it take the data and submit it somewhere? Does it calculate something and give you the results of the searching for something. So all of those functions, it reminds me of what Peter Diamandis talked about with that marketplace in China, all the electronics marketplace, where all the components all under one roof, you can mix and match all the circuit, mm -hmm. you know, whatever you need is all there mm -hmm. under one roof. And I imagine mm -hmm. that's where we are with coding, that all the code all the functions that you would want to use are have already been invented kind of thing. And you can modularly put in a button that calculates using data. That sounds, so that's going to democratize coding really, I guess. Yeah. Well, first mm -hmm. of all, they'll never get the coders. I mean, they just won't have enough coders. You know, they need 10 times more coders, and that's mm -hmm. not going to happen by individuals deciding to become coders. And what they're going to do is provide a means that anybody who's already doing something useful can yeah. add coding to the, can add coding to their. So yeah. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have a talk with my tech guy, the chief tech. Yeah. We've got 14 in our tech department at Coach. You know? That's amazing. And, yeah. uh, and my sense is that they should get into this real fast and crack the code on it. Crack the code on it. Anyway, <laughs> and, and, and then become teachers inside of our company to teach the other team members how to apply this easy. It's called low coding. That's the term there. Low, low coding. code and no code, right? Low, low coding. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, a couple of years down the road, you have, you have an entire organization who can self code, you know, they can create, yes. create new tools regarding activities that they're doing that they can take, you know, they're repeating the activities over and over again, but it's work each time. And why not just have it coded? So it's a few clicks mm -hmm. and they can do that, but they can invent new shortcuts. They can invent new programs. And everything. So um, I was very excited about it. 
And, you know, but the thing is, with all technology, there's a point, you know, there's a distance between human beings and technology, okay? And there's a line in the middle, somewhere halfway between them. And the technology is saying to the humans, you have to come to me. You have to come to me. You have to learn how to work with me. And humans will move somewhat in that direction, but then they draw a line in the sand and said, from now on, you have to, they say to technology, you have to come to us. And I think this is one of those moments. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Just, I mean, it's so much, there's so much great stuff happening right now. I mean, it's just so, it's almost. Uh, Only if you're a person who's looking for great stuff. Well, I think you're. <laughs> I think you're right. I guess you could paint things any which way. People would say, "Oh, no. taking our no. jobs." Yeah. Now, another person. I'm going to hypothetically create another person who's a mile from you in celebration. Uh huh. Sitting on hit on sitting on his version of the throne in his garden palace, uh-huh. and he's say, he's saying, "We've got to stop this. We've got to stop this stuff." You know, yeah. you know, yeah. Uh, uh, I, there, it's everything's going to fall apart. It's you know how we can't possibly keep up with this amount of change. You know, so they're not looking. They're not looking at in an excited way. Right. What you're looking at? Like, yeah, I'm just so giddy and excited about the the, the big change. <laughs> I wonder. You know, it's funny how I well you're you part of right. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're part of the big change. Right. That's exactly right. But I think it's so funny how a name like the big change, you could literally write that at any point in history. Mm-hmm. You, know, you could have written this book in 1900 and called it the big change. You could have written it in any year between 1900 and 2022 and called it the big change. I did uh, say uh, the new is always the thing. It's funny because my yeah. the name of my company is New Information, and which is always timeless. It's timelessly relevant and of the moment, right? New Information Inc. And the uh, we did a book a book title with one of our clients is actually a coach a member as well, Chris McAllister. Oh, Chris, he was in for. He was in for his workshop on Thursday in Chicago. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he he texted. I got about I got about ten texts of screen or of uh, pictures of the the compelling offer worksheet. Oh, you (laughs) did? Yeah, people of people because I I was right up there. It was a real hit. It was a real hit. It was a real Mm -hmm. hit. Yeah, and most people had to admit. After thinking about it, you know, I get them to brainstorm and then I say, okay, what are your three, your three offers? And mine were who, not how is number one offer. Number two is gap in the gains. And number three is 10 times as easier than two times. Yeah. Okay. And the a compelling offer is being discussed. It may not immediately say exactly what the offer is, but it's so compelling that people have to find out what the offer is. They can't they cannot resist 
like the gap in the gain. They said, well, what's Mm -hmm. that? And I said, well, if you achieve something and you measure it against your ideals, it makes you even more unhappier than you were before you made the measurement. And if you achieve something and you measure where you started, you're automatically happier now than you were. And I said, your choice in life, like Mm. you're either going to be in the gap or you're going to be in the game. They said, oh man, that's amazing. And that kind of relates to that thing. What's that thing called? The gap in the game? Or the who, not how? Yeah, I said, yeah, yeah. If you combine the two, they're mm. doubly important. And then mm-hmm. if you have an overall structure that 10 times is easier than two times, both of those become powerful tools inside. You know, mm-hmm. and they said, wow, you could create a program out of that. And I said, you know, I've been <laughs> giving that a thought. I've been giving that a thought, actually. Yeah. That's so so anyway, we went through and 90% of the class had to or the workshops, and this has been for the last two weeks, have been admitting that almost all their success so far as entrepreneurs has been on the basis of convincing arguments. Yeah, very interesting, right? So to to, uh, close the Chris McAllister loop, the book title that we did was the uh, How to Make It in the New Real Estate Business. Which could have been true at any point, but there's something about the relevance of right now, the timelessness of of that, you know. And by the way, the in the split tests of the ad versus the former title brought the ad cost down by to an eighth of what the the other title was. So fascinating to have something like compelling as your introduction your intro into a conversation where then mm-hmm. you can because the compelling brings people in to where the convincing can happen you know it's yeah. an interesting thing when you introduce the well concept. the thing is the uh, very very clearly that a convincing argument is about the speaker yes and a compelling argument a compelling offer is about the listener outwardly focused yeah, don't, right. don't benefit. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to know. Nobody, nobody needs to know anything about you if mm-hmm. they grasp how you're useful. Yes. Yeah. No, it was wonderful. I am beginners in the room, you know. And what you find out is that they're good at networking, and they have lots of people who give the them great references. They give them. Great, you know, great, they're the great connection. And they say, you know, I don't know exactly what he does here, but you should really spend time with him. And mm-hmm. and then they, you know, they have trust with a new person and the new person's willing to give them time because yeah. convincing arguments really take time. You know, convincing yeah. arguments take time. Yeah. Compelling offers don't take any time. Yes. That's yeah, I mean, true. I, I said, they, somebody said, okay, so give us an example, not one of yours or ours, give us an example of a compelling offer. And I said, well, Christianity. I said, you know, so Christianity had this neat thing. They said, you know, you're a slave and there's the emperor and it just looks like the world's totally unfair, but this is only life one and it's just a roll of the dice and because you actually have an easier life one than the emperor does, 
because how you handle life one makes you eligible for life two. Okay, so when you go, so he may be an emperor now, you're a slave, but if you're a good slave and he's a bad emperor, when life two ends, then you're on top and he's somewhere else, you know, and that's a compelling offer. God and the devil. That's yeah. right. Life, liberty, <laughs> and, and, life, and hell, liberty in the yeah. first. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Yeah. I got that. That's compelling. Where they are, they can take my life away at any time. I don't have any liberty. And this is the first, and this is the first time I've ever ha- heard anybody mention happiness. You know? Wow. This is a free land. <laughs> That's like pretty day. compelling. You think free about land, that. 100 acres, improve yeah. it over five years, you own it. Yeah. That's a pretty compelling offer, right? Like I think yeah. about trying to convince people to make the journey by boat to this new land. You'd have to do some pretty much, you'd have to do some convincing to get yeah. that there. But the compelling offer of, I loved that movie Far and Away, which was a great, yeah. a great mm-hmm. example of mm-hmm. that uh, time. But what a, you know that is amazing when you think about that America itself is really uh, based on a compelling offer. Oh yeah, yeah, totally, and it still is. Yeah, yeah. There's a worldwide continual survey run by an organization that's been around for about 50 years, and every year they calculate the number of people who are living somewhere who want to be living somewhere else. They estimate it's a tenth of the global population. Okay, so mm-hmm. it's about 800 million, 800, 800 million people every year, if given the possibility and the means, would move someplace else. And every year, 25 to 25 percent of the 800 million, 200 million, the destination is the United States. Yes. Oh, that's an interesting. Take, I, that's pretty, yeah, that's an interesting. The United States is number one. Yeah. Uh, do you know where China is? I bet it's on the opposite of it. The but list, it's probably uh, the number the one more people want to get out of. The list only goes to the top 20 countries okay. that people say in China is not on one of them. No, I bet. And yeah. where I, you know where I'd want to go is China. <laughs> Give me the opportunity, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking of sending my kids to China, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah, we're buying some real estate there. And uh, yeah, and now that I can work virtually, I can work there from China, you know, get, yeah. get my kids there. We're all taking Mandarin, you know, all of us are studying Mandarin too. Mm. You know, tough language, but we know it's going to be crucial to our future. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> future it's to like, our overlords. Our future overlords. Like qui- yeah. Quiz. How many stories have you read of people swimming to Cuba? (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) Yeah, not one. I've never been to Cuba. Have you been to Cuba? No, I've got a rule. I don't go to any country that's not, doesn't have a reasonable democracy. Okay. And a Four Seasons. That's a good policy. 
Yeah, unfortunately, the Four Seasons doesn't follow that rule. So they've got their hotels and countries that everywhere. Don't have yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. no, I, I just don't feel comfortable because I feel that nothing I'm being presented with is real. You're right. There's a great hmm. one. There's a great one that somebody says, and he says, you know, they talk about countries that compete with the United States. And he says, I got one rule for countries that compete with the United States. He says, you go to their capital city, you go mm-hmm. 100 miles outside the city, and if there's and if they're shitting in a hole in the ground, they're not competition. But, right, exactly. Plumbing. Bigger problems. Yes. Plumbing. U.S. has the best free, vast network of free bathrooms, free restrooms in the world. I bet that's true. Yeah, of course it is. There's actually, it's so funny, there's actually apps. There's a you know, rest, public restroom rating apps. <laughs> oh, yeah. Cities, like for New York or where uh Whatever yeah. the uh, well, the interstate interstate highway systems have a yeah. similar one. If you're going on this, uh, you know, and seldom more than twenty minutes away uh, are you ever away from a free public restroom. McDonald's, Burger King. Yeah, yeah. Well, you look at, I mean, what, from you know, in the 1900s, he was talking about the what the general like the public facilities were very little in 1900. Like there were no libraries or YMCAs or, you know, things like that in, in suburban, like outside of the cities, there's no organized anything, no paved roads, no electricity wasn't even all the way through, you know, by then. And so it was really kind of, it's pretty stark when you start to think of that. And he kind of, I was looking at the chronicling of everybody kind of consolidating things like the rise of the department store at the cost of the mom and pop store, you know, Mm -hmm. in the things that there were the proprietors, they couldn't compete with the variety and the, pricing of the stores yeah and the catalog and and the catalog like montgomery roebuck you know i mean yeah and my montgomery ward montgomery ward yeah the two Mm -hmm. big rivals there yeah yeah and now it comes back full circle that in cloudlandia amazon the everything store you know you can't the department stores can't compete with the everything store with everything mm-hmm. everywhere all at once, you know? I mean, you, um, you can, yeah, get any, like literally I heard about this book on Thursday and on Thursday afternoon, I one click, you know, swiped my order now and Friday it arrived. And that's like, I could have had it instantly on my Kindle, but for a book like this, I want to be able to write in the margins and make notes. I'll often get yeah. both versions. I'll get a paperback and a Kindle yeah. version so I can read the Kindle version, but I can still make notes in the physical. Well, Babs well. and I, though, have discovered that if Babs doesn't shop, but does one of two things, she orders it online. That's mm. the first choice. 
or you send Dan, that that Dan will buy three times more things than if you just try to order online. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> because Dan is walking the aisles, and he's yeah. ADD. And he right. Oh, need his, that. Oh, look at this. His attention. His attention is captured by many different things. Oh, yeah. It would be good to have this. Well, we can yeah. try this out. Yeah. And everything like that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Get so the, the cottage the, too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the shopping technology that you're using, if it has five senses, it brings you more than if the technology only has one sense. Yeah. That's true. That is true. Yeah. The ultimate win, though, is to get the audio book and the Kindle and the paperback so that you can listen and follow along on the Kindle. That's like a yeah. full immersion. Yeah, I mean, that's how I was thinking about that. That's a platform that, you know, I mean, we do it with our little books because we have a video version, we have an mm-hmm. audio version. And then we have a little test in the back with the mindset scorecard. And, uh, but, you know, it'd be interesting as one of your foot, I'm going to, in the next book that I'm doing, I'm going to put as footnotes. So it's got 10 sections. It's got an intro. It's got eight chapters. It's got a conclusion. And what I'm going to do in every section is cross-reference to another one of the small books. Okay. What is this one, the next one you've got? Just coming out. I just finished it up as you're not a computer. You're not a computer. You are, right? you are not a computer. You mm-hmm. are not a computer, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was struck by the little Google incident about a month ago where a Google programmer got fired because he was insisting that he, his large language AI had sentient existence. It, it had actually crossed over into sentience. And not only that, he was fired, and then he went to a law firm and got the law firm to be the advisor to the sentient that he was the sentient being that Google had its AI program. Didn't have mm-hmm. legal protect. Didn't have legal representation. Didn't have legal, and so they fired this guy. So, wow. You know, <clears throat> and uh, anyway, so it was an interesting. There's been about three or four really good articles written on it. And uh, do you know set theory? Do you know the mathematical? You know, it's a branch of mathematics. So set and subsets. Oh, I, I know about it, but I, and I've heard those words. And I could guess, but what? Give me, there, give me the full definition. Let's pretend. Well, I there, there's the set of Dean Jackson. Yeah. And a sub, and a subset of that yeah. would be the nine-word email. Would right. Be a subset of uh, Dean Jackson. Share one with Dean Jackson, which is who, not how. Mm-hmm. The subset of Dean Jackson. Yeah. Uh, the compelling offer is a subset of Dean ja- Dean Jackson. Yes, and you know, you know, all the other things you've invented are subset. They're subsets. Yeah. Okay. And the thing is that none of them can be bigger than you because you're the creator. Mm-hmm. You're the creator, and yeah. uh, so so there's a set called humanity, and in humanity, subsets of humanity are 
spoken language, written language, printed language, mm-hmm. digital language, and then mm-hmm. there's all sorts of ma- machinery. Machinery, machineries are always subsets of humanity. Okay, so the whole notion that an AI program could be superior to its mm-hmm. creator is mathematically impossible. That's an interesting thought. I think about those things as context and content. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Hugh McLeod with his gapping void, he has, and I think it's Joe get, just gave it to him to create a cartoon out of it. And oh. that you can't be inside the jar and read what's on the label. Right, uh-huh, yes. Yeah, so if you're inside of a system, you can't comprehend what the system is that you're actually inside of. Right. That's like the, yeah, how's the water to a fish? They don't know. Yeah. What's water? Fish. What's water? <laughs> yeah. Fish have no comprehension. Fish have no comprehension of what water is. So they, that's that's water, interesting you know? thought. So you're constrained by the, you know, by the, your knowledge of the context that you're, in yeah if you don't see the grander the bigger context yeah where we experience we're in a three-dimensional context and so we don't have an experience of a fourth dimensional context we have an experience we have an experience even though i think time is the uh, einstein alluded to this einstein said that he thought that time was actually the fourth dimension And he says, we've done a really good job on three dimensions, like we have measurements for everything related to, you know, and actually we haven't gone too much further with that since, since Euclid was Uh about 20, 2300 years ago. I mean, Euclid Uh established basically the mathematics that was necessary for building Celebration Florida. You know, Uh there's not a thing that a piece of mathematics that was required to build your community down there it didn't exist 2300 years ago it's gotten mm-hmm. better and better it we've added technology to it but said imagine a two-dimensional world and he said that and in the two-dimensional world you there's a sense that you start with a point and then the point goes way way out and you can't see that from above, that looks like a circle, okay? You can be part of the line yeah. of the circle, you can be part of the point of the circle, but you can't see. So he said, imagine a two-dimensional circle, imagine yeah. in a sphere. You have, there, that you just don't have any Frame ability to imagine yeah. what life is like for a sphere. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, technology is a two-dimensional circle, and humanity is a sphere. You know, mm-hmm. technology is one of the things that we create to, you know, create to, you know, experience what we're experiencing. So, you know, we've got technology, yeah, but we got sort of music and we have, you know, interpersonal relationships and we've got politics and we've got, you know, we've got all sorts of things. And technology is one of the things that we use. Now, and I think the, what I really notice is about the people who I've met. I'm sure there's people who are polymaths and they know a great deal. But when I talk to people about things other than technology, they have no knowledge of things other than tech. They don't know history. They don't know right. geography. 
They don't know politics. They don't know. That's interesting. Uh, they don't know how to get a date. <laughs> ah, it just dawned on me that the, you know, the term frame of reference may yeah. be related to set theory like that. That's we can only experience something within the frame of reference that we have. Yeah. So if you're thinking about something as something else or on a grander scale or in another context, you can see different. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you just had some Supreme Court, Supreme Court decisions mm-hmm. three weeks ago. Very triggering, you know, Supreme Court decisions. Sure. But basically, they reinforced the notion that in the Constitution, there are only three governing bodies. There's the executive, there's the legislature, Congress and, and the, the Senate, and there's the, then there's the Supreme Court. And the issue, first of all, of Roe versus Wade, they said this is, it was premature to try to take it to the national level. And we're returning it back to the state level, you know. And if you get to the point where it's so influential, you know, so many states have gone for, uh, you know, the the abortion, you know, the abortion, and you got 40, 45 states, it'll show up in the congressman, in the legislature, and it'll show up in the Senate, the main Senate. And then if they mm-hmm. vote that they want a national law, they can do it. And to give you an example of one that's underway right now is marijuana. Marijuana mm-hmm. is not a national law in the United mm-hmm. States. Certain states have legalized marijuana, certain right. other, but it doesn't have a critical mass yet on a national basis. And yeah. so, so what the court says, you know, come back when you've got a overwhelming consensus among the elected federal Congress people and the mm-hmm. elected Senate people, and they'll pass mm-hmm. laws, and they'll pass laws. But don't jump from San Francisco to the Supreme Court. Right. Don't, don't jump from New York City to the Supreme Court. Right. You know, first of all, get the state of New York, get the state of California, and then get about 40 others, and then you've got something to talk about. But what they're basically saying is that these three bodies are the set. Everything else under it is a subset. And right now, yeah. your issue is a subset. It, uh, it's not deserving of national legislative. You know, it's, it's not worthy of a national yeah. law yet. Right. You haven't done enough work. You haven't done enough work yet to, to do that. So then the other one they did, which was really interesting, it was the Environmental Protection Agency against West Virginia. And the EPA was creating all sorts of new laws just to punish West Virginia, you know, to basically shut down all the coal mines. And they said, we look at the Constitution, we don't see anything in that. We see something in there that validates West Virginia. We don't see anything in there that validates the Environmental Protection Act agents. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the state of West Virginia has legal status at the level of the national government because it's one of the states Mm -hmm. the environment yeah who are you where are you you know where's Mm -hmm. your desk i don't even know where you are what Mm -hmm. are you doing trying to make laws that are only the right of the national government to make you trying to make laws and besides you're overriding the laws that are rightfully the state of west virginia 
Mm. We're saying you can't do that. And the big thing there is that's not only true of the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, it's true of the Center for Disease Control, it's it's for the Federal Communications Committee, it's for the FBI, it's for the CIA, it's mm-hmm. for the, you know, it, it's for all these departments that have been created, you know, created over the last the alphabet agencies, as they call them. The alphabet yeah. agencies. And mm-hmm. I have to tell you, I bet there's been a huge increase in the number of federal bureaucrats who are contemplating retiring real quick because their future's just been ended. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Then so, we've got the midterms coming up, too. Yeah. And that's going to that's gonna cross the T's and dot the I's on the direction that things are going. Yeah. Hmm. This is uh, we're living in interesting times, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. We're experiencing the big change as we speak. Well, there's it's a bit arbitrary because I did one from seventy five to I had a thing called the Great Crossover Yeah. I created. And the Great Crossover was the movement from the was the crossover to digital language becoming as powerful and then more powerful than mass printing language 1450 yeah. 1450 is gutenberg and we've lived mm-hmm. really the you know the past you know, 450 550 you know with 500 almost 600 yeah. years in the mass printing world Right. And now we're moving into the mass digital world. Cloudlandia. Cloudlandia. That's exactly right. I guess that could be Mm -hmm. that Cloudlandia is a subset of the great crossover. Yeah. 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 Three, three thoughts worth pursuing that we talked about of going further, possibly in the future podcast, asking a question. Oh, you're asking me that. Okay. Yeah, asking questions. Yeah. That, that's occurred to you as we as that we've been talking. Yeah. Well, I'm fascinated. Like, I'm literally, I'm just a couple of chapters and some skimming of the the big change. And this, I think that the similarities, as I proposed to you, that I believe we're at the same relative stage in 2022 as America would have been in this big change in 1922, Mm -hmm. where infrastructure, Mm -hmm. we're not at the point where the internet is shaping its way. We're at the point where we're on a fully mature internet, full adoption and almost full migration to Cloudlandia right now. And I think that Mm -hmm. if we look at the, contrasting and comparing all the advancements that happened from 1922 to 1950 and projecting and kind of talking about what the infrastructure things that are in place now here in 2022, what that is going to mean as we could potentially mean as we migrate into Cloudlandia and advance to 2050. I think there'll be mm-hmm. some lessons in that. Who the big winners of the fully mature infrastructure of 
you know, the mainland America, which is really yeah. what was dominant until the great crossover that you're talking about is what's going to be the, you know, the trajectory or the path from a fully formed Cloudlandia going forward. That to me is very fascinating. There's some lessons in parallel yeah. there. Yeah. Well, my feeling is that the first stage of Cloudlandia, I would say from when mid 1970s until COVID, um, yes, 75, was that there is no national mainland anymore. It's a global mm-hmm. mainland. Yeah. And COVID and the failure of global supply chains brought everybody to full attention that in the yeah. future, the mainland is going to be anything connected to the United States. Yeah. And I agree with you 100% that global... It means if you're somewhere else in the world, if you're somewhere else in the world and you're fully participating in Cloudlandia, it's because you're totally politically, economically, security, militarily connected to the United States. The United States is the center of all the mainland, all the mainland. Yeah. And uh, yeah, because just an example, the when the Russians invaded Ukraine, the United States and their allies said, you're not in Cloudlandia anymore as far as we're concerned. We're taking away your Cloudlandia and pass. Okay. We've got big mm-hmm. guys at the door and you're going to try to get in and you can't get in. You know, so they can't another, even get the parts. They can't even get the tech, technological parts to yeah. be in the mainland. Well, where we're at too, like you look at the the monetary system, like you know, in 1900, there was no central banking. 1912, 1913. 1912 is when that all happened, right? Yeah. So that whole, the, you know, the banking system and when did Federal Reserve come into yeah. play? The, re- the whole notion of the re- whole notion of the reserve currency was invented yeah. in, Around 1912, and it was the pound was the dominant, and that went till 45, and then the dollar is the currency. And people say, well, you know, cyber currency is going to replace that, you know, and I said, well, we just got a little, we just got a little insight on that in the last three or four months of how powerful the, uh, you know, cryptocurrency is, you know. Yeah. It's not attached to anything, you know. Right. Yeah. It's a speculative think, investment. Yes. But the block. Yeah, I think you're, be, I, I think, think you're, like the whole. Yeah. I'm no, I think you're, whole, uh, you're, <laughs> you're, your rock star, Mr. Beast, is a real example of yeah. the new kind of entrepreneur in Cloudlandia. Yeah. And people say, yeah, that just shows you what's going to happen. I said, yeah. And he's from North Carolina, and all this stuff is in the United States. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Yeah. But I you also think like everything, you know, I think about cryptocurrency, Bitcoin and all of that. That's, I think the cryptocurrencies and, the, you know, early stage NFTs and the speculative nature of what's happening right now is very similar 
to what was happening in the late 90s with the dot-coms, right? That the mm. dot-com boom was, you know, and bust, that 90% of the dot-com companies were out of business by, you know, 2001. And I think we're going to see that same kind of thing with the cryptocurrencies that 90% of them are going to go to zero. But the winning thing, just like the internet, the underpinning of the dot-com boom, the internet thrived, right? It was still there and it's the foundation of everything that I think underneath all of it, the blockchain is the real thing that maybe is going to be the, the survivor of that yeah, and, I think and really blockchain, make the big change. I think the blockchain is there because yeah. it has a totally different purpose. Yeah, it has a totally different purpose. And what, from my standpoint, what it does that if you create something, the blockchain verifies globally that yeah. you're the owner of the thing. And to me, yeah. that you can build and build on that. The other is a speculative investment. I mean, it's like the Canadian dollar. They say the Canadian currency. I said the Canadian dollar is not a currency. The Canadian right. dollar is a speculative investment. And its value is based on the U.S. dollar. I, ch- I know. I check it every morning. I check one number right. every morning. Dollar thirty-one this morning. I just saw that the euro apparently has reached. Is it par. true? The euro is par with the dollar. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. For the first every time, every currency in every currency in the world is down against the dollar, and that tells you where all the money is going. Yeah. Right. Even in spite of inflationary fear. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, I could have these conversations indefinitely. They're fascinating to me. Yeah, I was just, we just bought a, some watches from the UK that Richard Rossi recommended. And, Uh and it's a, it has to be on my right hand because I've got my Apple watch on my left wrist. And what it does, it's a continual 24-7 reading of your blood pressure. Oh, my goodness. And, wow. Yeah. All through your – and you, it, it prints out a 24-hour thing, uh, you know. Is it displaying your blood pressure right now? Yeah. Yeah, it displays it. Just, well, I, we don't have it yet. It's on the way. Can't oh, I get them okay. in Canada. Can't get them in the United States. Right. And uh, But our – British team bought it for us in there. It's on the it's on the way. Wow. And, yeah, and I'll report on it because one of the weaknesses of blood pressure readings is that they're a snapshot of you at a particular time in a particular activity yeah. sometime during the day and it changes on a continual basis. Blood mm-hmm. pressure at five o'clock in the afternoon is always higher than blood pressure at eight o'clock in the morning. You know, blood pressure when you're sleeping in the middle of the night is much lower than, you know, when you're fully active and engaged. But what it does, it just gives you a pattern, and then it can isolate the activities, the foods, and everything that impact on your blood pressure. I think it's a neat thing. Isn't that amazing? Couple that with your blood glucose measurements on your arm and your steps and your readiness and temperature, all of it. Yeah. You know who's fighting this? Who? The American Medical Association. Oh, yeah. Interesting. The watch 
<clears throat> is a greater expert than they are. Something. The American pharmaceutical industry doesn't like it either. Because meditation, you know, things that you don't have to pay for, you know, improve your, your, your pressure. blood pressure. Yeah. Sleep I, improves your, you know, diet changes yeah. your blood pressure. Anyway, but that's Cloudlandia. There's Cloudlandia yeah. becoming fully active. Absolutely. Yeah. Great treat, Dean. Will I see yeah. you Thursday and Friday? Uh, what is Thursday and Friday? We have Thursday our makeup. Friday. We have our makeup Zoom workshops both for ten the Zoom times. workshop. Yes, I'll be there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Thursday and Friday, ten yes. times. Free zones on Friday, ten times is on Thursday, and we'll be talking a lot about the statement by Dean Jackson. Okay, I'll so I it. said we well, might I'll... as well. We might as well have the. We might as well have the master there. I'll be there. Perfect. Okay. Okay. And yes. and you know what? <clears throat> All that? you have to do is get a little bit more comfortable in your chair. Okay, that's exactly right. Just turn the camera on. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Dan. All righty. I will see you then. Bye. Okay, bye.